Hello, and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guest today is Whitney Gilliard. Whitney is the co-founder and CEO of Gilliard & Company, an organization in Georgia that supports transitional age youth with housing, independent living, and mentoring. Well, welcome, Whitney. Thank you so much for joining Aging Out Institute's podcast series. We're so happy to have you with us. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this. Oh, we're so excited to have you, and I'm really interested in hearing about your organization. To get started, why don't I ask about your background, and if you could tell us about your history and how it is that you became involved with foster youth to begin with. Yeah. So like I said, thank you so much for having me. Uh, My name is Whitney Gilliard and I got into this work because I personally feel like many other great businesses out there or any sort of mission, it all derives from some sort of lived experience, right? So I myself was a ward of the state. I was in foster care from 14 to 21 years old. And when I left the system, I just knew that something, I, I remember a quote that says, someday this pain will be useful. And I think I took that quote literally. Um, So I reported back into the system and I said, hey, I think I got some information after I have left the system and I'm reporting back with some some changes that I like to make. Okay. So you had a background in the system, as did I. I aged out at 18. How long were you in the system altogether? Geez, what are the years, Lynn? Um, From from 14 to 21. (laughs) That's how long I've been in foster care. It felt like it was a lifetime, but you know, I was in the system right there at the peak of just after 13. Okay. And so you've experienced that and that's where your passion comes from then. Yes, 100%, 100%. And all the people that were there by my side, I tell people, you know, I'm not a product of the system. I'm a product of people who loved me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I understand that. When my sister and I were in foster care, we were so fortunate to have people around us, house parents in group homes, relief house parents, our grandmother, our uncle and aunt, people who really cared about our future and us as people, and they helped us along. So I totally am with you on that sentiment. Thank you. I think there's always that commonality, like that sisterhood and that camaraderie whenever you have been through the system, because there's that level of unspoken respect, because we all know the depths of what all that means. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And in so many people who have been through that experience, speaking of foster care specifically, they want to give back in some way. And they want to help young people so that they don't have to struggle as much as they are right now, statistically speaking. And so I'm guessing that that's what happened with you is you came out of the system and then turned around and wanted to give back in some way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so what does that look like when you aged out? What was the path that you took that brought you to the organization that you're running now? So when I aged out, this oh, my aging out process was rough. Um, <laughs> it was rough. <laughs> I made a lot of crappy decisions when I was about 17 years old. I thought I knew everything, right? And so now I tell our young adults, quick, hurry up and move out while you still know everything. Um, but, <laughs> you know, but no, I made some really rough decisions. And you know, now that I'm a professional in this world and I've had some education and some training, I realized that every decision I made, it was a trauma reaction. It absolutely was, you know, not 
to take away any responsibility myself, but I do recognize that. And so with those decisions that I've made, which shutting people off and having just a really, you know, existential crisis as a teen in foster care, it led me to, you know, being really quick to latch on to people. Um, luckily, I found my way into this man that I fell in love with and he, he was my boyfriend and I thought he was the best thing ever, <laughs> you know, and he was so kind to me. The first person that I ever got a chance to choose in my life that was kind to me, him and I, we, I ended up getting pregnant in foster care and that was very scary. Luckily, as time has gone by, he's my husband and we love each other to pieces and we have an amazing son. But, you know, it really just dawned on me during that time while I was aging out and reflecting back, what would have happened if I didn't have my foster parents step in in the nick of time? What would have happened if there wasn't like an independent living program in DC that I was able to go to? What would have happened within those past only two years out of all the years I've been in the system? If these two families didn't step in, what would have happened to myself and what would have happened to my child? So I think because right. of that, I want to make sure like, hey, let's build something out of this from that lived experience. Like the quote that I said in the very beginning, someday this pain will be useful. Let's take that pain and make it useful. And let's build an organization that is going to create a permanent change. That's wonderful. I think that the, the connections that we have that help us make the better decisions is really, I don't know if it's the most important thing, but it might be. I know that having a supportive adult in your life as a young person in foster care is one of the key elements for success in transitioning to adulthood. Yes. And it isn't just that you have that relationship, it's that you have the guidance along with it. And it sounds like you had that guidance. And I'm going to guess, now maybe I'm wrong, you aged out at 21. Were you in some kind of extended care between 18 and 21 that your foster parents encouraged you to take advantage of? Or does the foster system at that time, did it run all the way through 21? So I'll tell you this. It's really interesting how God has been able to watch after me every step of the way. I was grandfathered into the 21-year-old program when it just first passed because a few, I think a few years, one or two years, right before I turned 18, it was only up to 18. So when I turned 18 years old and all the foster parents in the Fairfax County area and, you know, in Virginia learned that, oh, wow, you can stay till 21. My parents made sure that I stay. They pushed for me to stay in the system and take all the benefits that I was able to and make something out of myself. And I did exactly just that. With their guidance, I was the first in my family to graduate high school. That was a big deal. I was the first in my family to even keep my child, you know, in a healthy relationship and be married and have a stable relationship. Whenever I was upset with my spouse, I was able to have family I could call on instead of leading toxic cycles, right? Mm-hmm. I was the first to graduate from college. Like that day was amazing for me. And I wouldn't have had any of that if there wasn't somebody that was by my side that, you know, my mom, my foster mom, I call mom now, if she wasn't a yes person, she's always saying, you know, honey, never allow yes people in your lives. Make sure you have people that are saying no and that they're pushing you to do things even when it's uncomfortable. And I didn't want to stay in foster care, Lynn. I didn't. I, I hated it. I, I was so mad at them. I was like, why are you telling me to stay? There's nothing here for me, but there's goodness that came out of that. Absolutely. And so many young people make that decision. They're like, oh, it's 18. I am so ready to get out of here. And they make the decision to leave the system. And then in a year or two, they realize, oh, this isn't as easy as I thought it was going to be. Maybe I do need that extra assistance. And thankfully, I think many of them are able to come back in the system if they take advantage of it. But at that age, like you're saying, I remember I knew everything. 
right? Yeah. <laughs> you think you know everything and you turn 18, you're like, I'll be fine. I'll make it work. But it, it's tougher than they think. So I'm really glad that you were encouraged to stay to age 21 and take advantage of those things. Thank you. I think that that is a really tough conversation sometimes to have because, you know, and I feel like you have had to have this experience to be able to say this to people. You can't just not have had experience and then tell somebody like, oh yeah, it's going to work out perfectly fine. You know, my parents were worried whether it would come out perfectly fine. They gave me their advice, but as somebody who's came from the system, I am so inclined to tell everyone, please consider the resources given to you. But the first step is to listen and have an open heart for those who are giving you this advice, you know? Yep. I mean, yep. we've lost so much already. What else is there to lose? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just unfortunately at that age, a year or two or three seems like eternity. Yep. In retrospect, of course, it's a blink of an eye. It is. It is. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm running our programs and all that entails with that. The years go by really, really fast. Really, oh, yeah. really fast. Absolutely. Well, that's a great segue to finding out more about your organization and what is it that you do. So what does a Gileadi company do to help young people in foster care, particularly the young people aging out? So we do a series of things, right? So we have several programs. One of our programs, we actually provide housing for transitional age youth. So it's the 18 to 21 year old demographic that we are really hoping to come in, create that intervention, just like the intervention that happened to me at 17 years old, except we're starting at 18. And they're able to stay with us until they're 21 years of age. And in that time, we teach them financial literacy, obtaining a job, so employment, and we also get them acclimated with education if that is something that they choose to go with. So that's another thing too, is that we have a different culture in our nonprofit, we know that success looks differently for everyone. And we're not the organization where we force and mold like this is what success is. It is the first and foremost thing is being happy. So we focus a lot on mental health in that aspect too. The other pillar services that we do is we have our permanency mentor program, which falls in line with, you know, that experience that I had where I had relational permanency without adoption. So this is another way for young adults that are aging out the system. If adoption is not it, if foster care and being fostered into a, a family is not it and returning home is not an option, then we do believe that it is our due diligence and as in the work that we do, and it is our ethical standard to be able to find permanency for our young adults. So we did exactly just that. And we have volunteers who become permanent mentors in a young adult's life, just like what my mentor Esther is for me. And she stays strong in my life. My foster parents, you know, they stay there with me and they're there for me in my good days and bad days. And that's exactly what these mentors are for. And it's a great program. It's a big deal. It's like adoption, but without the legal ties to it, right? Mm -hmm. And then we also have our Haven, which is a trauma intervention room. It's built within the, in the brick and mortar site of defects. And so when a child is removed or displaced within the system or entering the system, instead of going and staying at an office location where it's, you know, it makes it difficult for anybody who's going through distress. And at the same time, when a social worker has to sit in and monitor a child, that makes it very difficult for the social worker to then have adequate timing to find a placement. So what we do is that we place in, you know, volunteers who are able to sit there, comfort the child. And in that room, there's all sorts of needs that are met for the child, whether it's snacks, hygiene products, backpacks, clothing, it's all there. And that allows support for the division to go ahead and find proper placement for, you know, for the kids. And then we also have our holiday initiative, which is our With Love Project. Our With Love Project, we focus on the preservation and prevention unit of foster care. And that's something that not a lot of people think about. It's not just foster care. There's other sectors into it as well. You know, what happens when you come in and what happens when you leave? And during the holidays, we provide provide that financial support for the foster parents, whether it's in-kind gifts or direct financial support.
board mm-hmm. instead of having any parent or caretaker think, oh, do I need to give money for presents or do I need to give money for, you know, the bills during that time? That's not a fair choice. So what we do is we come in and we provide that support. And that's an imperative time because that could be the make it or break it for some families. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, you have four key programs and that's a lot to unpack. What I'd like to do is maybe do a a couple of follow-up questions for each of those programs, just so that we can understand them a little bit better. For the housing program, transitional housing, you set these young people up in apartments. What does that look like? Do you lease apartments as they become available in local apartment complexes? Yes. So what we do is we work with different apartment complexes and we sign a lease just like you, if you were to go in and lease out in an apartment, right? What would you do? So that's exactly what we do. And we partner with some amazing locations here in Pooler, Georgia. We are actually migrating from, you know, our uh, director calls it the great migration. <laughs> we are migrating from Savannah, Georgia, all the way down to Pooler, Georgia. And, you know, the apartment complexes are great. They know about what we do. We have a great reputation in the community. So what we allow is for the young adults to have a two-bedroom apartment there. We pay for their rent and throughout their time with us, they learn as they gain financial independence and everything that once they hit their second or third year, then we are able to matriculate them into full independence and they actually transition into that lease under their name. And the cool part about it is before they do that, they pay rent, right? Quote unquote rent. Um, And they think that when they pay rent, they're losing money, but actually we save all of that. We save it all and we give it back to them. And so during that time now, we have something that's going to leave the system with up to 20000 in the bank account, you know? Wow. At that, creating that financial stability is what it takes for any young person to have a leg up in society. So you expect them to pay rent, but you're actually covering the rent, the money yes. that they're spending, you're giving back. And do they know they're getting that money back? Some of them do. Surprise? I mean, we're very, we're very transparent. If they ask, we tell them. If they don't, then it is a beautiful surprise for them. And sometimes it helps, it helps a little bit, depending on who you're working with, that you don't tell mm-hmm. them that because then there's some sort of anxiety about like, oh my God, I got to pay rent. Just like any, that's healthy anxiety. That's called responsibility, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's doing your due diligence. So when that happens, we're, we do our part in communicating that, but when they have that lease, because now they've already practiced paying rent, right? And now when they're done and the lease is under their name, they're already used to paying rent. So now they pay reality rent, which is their own money. And we don't cover yeah. that when they graduate our program. I love that they practice paying rent, not only just the habit of it, but understanding budget-wise that, okay, this money is not in the bank account anymore. I can't just go spend it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's that budgeting. It's that budgeting skill, you know? And the really amazing part is that look at what stability is able to provide because within their first year with us, you wouldn't believe. I mean, our young adults spend money like it's going out of style, you know, because Mm -hmm. they're free. They're free from their, you know, from a foster home, from a group home, from a confined space. And now they have their money in a nine to five job. So with that, they're spending it on hair, makeup, nails, clothes shoes, all these fancy things. And that entire year, not that we allow them to do it, it's that they can do it. And we just come in gently and teach them why you need to put a halt on that. You know what I mean? And that's how long it takes for somebody to to learn. And then they have up to the three years for trial and error with us. Yeah. And it's also a matter of learning timing. Like, yeah, well, if you want to have your nails done, that's okay. But you just have to make sure that all of these things are paid first then if you have the money and you want to, you know, splurge a little bit, you can. That's life. That's how you work with money. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. I love hearing that. 
And so what kind of staff do you have to support these young people, all of this teaching that's happening and coaching? Who's doing that? So we have an amazing program director. Her name is Marissa Pierce and she's phenomenal. I mean, I don't know how this woman does it. She has three kids of her own and then essentially has like, you know, nine more under her belt, but they're not kids. These are big kids. <laughs> you know, they're they're that 18, 19, 20 year old and we love them all to death. I can't I can't tell you, Lynn, how amazing these young adults are and how they have changed our lives, just each and every one of them. Not because they're in foster care, it's because as individuals, they're amazing. And it pains mm-hmm. us to know that some people won't give them the time of day. And we do. And we learn so much and we become a much better person because of them. So we have a big old family. We have amazing community networking here. We actually have business owners all the way down to investors, builders, everyone from the news. We have councilwomen, councilmen, mayors, governors coming in and either mentoring or actually teaching a life skill course. So they're the ones that are teaching it. And that creates direct exposure and awareness to not just our young adults, but also on the other party's end. You know, it's just shocking to some of our volunteers when they come in, you know, foster care is known to be this crippling demographic. Oh, I'm ready to walk up and see some ghetto kids, but they come in and they see young adults. And just raising that awareness is so important to them and teaching them to not marginalize our kids. So there's that. But we have volunteers and I have an amazing team and amazing staff. We also have interns as well. And how many youth do you serve in the housing program specifically? So we have a site capacity of up to 16 young adults. We have transitioned in total. We have nine currently living with us. Mm, Okay. And that is just one site. That's one site approval. So as this site fills up to the max capacity of 16, when we are able to transition to another site, because we have a contract with a division, we're liable to get up to another 16. Wow, that would be fantastic. It would be great. (laughs) And and opportunities like this with you, Lynn, allows that to happen because the more we're able to get out there to tell people we exist, the faster it is for those in need to find us. Yeah, absolutely. I want to comment on the partnership of key people who can have a positive influence on your program, inviting them to come in and work with these young folks in teaching or mentoring. I love that connection, not only for raising awareness, but building appreciation, building a foundation for you of partnerships to be able to sustain the work that you do. So many benefits from that. Thank you. I think um, raising, you know, whenever we, I mean, there's such a, what's that word, Lynn? Disparaging it's so disparaging to see the average person stance in society and where a foster youth or a former foster youth, I'm sorry, we don't use that word anymore, but Mm -hmm. where a a former youth in care stance in society. And we are Mm -hmm. at the bottom of the totem pole. We are, we are. And so one of our mission in this is to, you know, in passing, build socioeconomic status for our young adults as well. That's fantastic. Well, I am very excited to hear about your housing program. You have three other programs. Yes. <laughs> I want to want to dig into each one a little bit. Your permanency mentor program. Could you help us understand a little bit of what that looks like? How many mentors do you have? How many young people do you work with? What does the curriculum look like if there is one, the goals and so forth? What is your mentoring program all about? 
Oh, um, we actually onboarded. I'll get right back to you on Lynn on how many mentors we have exactly because we, we have onboarded <laughs> over a handful and it's it's moving fast. And our, our community is so ready to say, you know, I think it was aha moment for everybody and go, wait, hold on. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I don't need to be a registered foster parent. I don't need to be somebody that has to go through court to to be there for somebody. Once they found that out and, and we go, they're 18 years old. I mean, do you limit yourself to how many friends you make? in the community? Of course you don't. You make them as they come. And right. when you make a friendship, what is what is that unknown pledge that you're making is that you're going to be there for that person, right? So mm-hmm. why can't we do the same thing for adolescents in care who don't have friends, you know, who don't have solid, great friends in the community that can be there for them? So it's mm-hmm. kind of like that. So our mentor program is designed to fill the gap in areas lacking the concrete resources and social support for young adults in the transitional that are transitioning out of foster care. So they worked hand in hand with our independent living program. So our mentors, they come in and they assist in the framework of the young adult's needs, they come in and they're able to support, you know, all of the positive. They're there to improve the well-being outcomes for our young adults and they establish trust and significant adult connections as they age out of the foster care system. That is their role. Okay. And how many young people are involved in the mentor program right now? Is it the same young people in the housing? Yes, it is the same young adults that are aging out of the system in our care that we pair them with. So now it's not just that we don't know, you know, it's not like it's a slew of them and we're just randomly pairing them up. We know the mentors, but most importantly, we have the profile of the young adults. Right, right, exactly. And how do you match mentors with? the young adults. So how we do this is that our mentors are assigned through the independent living programs director, the case manager, which actually is an active role that I'm in myself and our mentor program coordinator based on the, like I said, the framework of the young adults development and needs. So the assigned mentor will work closely with that youth and ensure that they have their specific needs of the older youth in care met and become a consistent figure. So based off on their matriculation in our program and our tracking that we have in our independent living program, we find a mentor who has a skill set and we pair them up together. And sometimes even without a skill set, it's their personalities. We have a mentee and a mentor right now whose personality match exactly, but one is doing a job that the mentee doesn't really per se want to go into, but they're able to help each other in that sense. And I think that that is the best pair. It's almost like blind speed dating. <laughs> you know, you're, you're meeting someone, you're matching someone. And, and if I do say so myself, Lynn, I am doing a really good job of pairing everyone. I think I, I just like making friends. <laughs> Well, I am really glad to hear that. How do you find your mentors? Because I know in some programs I've heard it can be difficult, particularly finding men. So we actually have quite a few male mentors. I would say we have more male mentors than female mentors. Now that you pointed that out, (laughs) we actually do. What is your Um, secret? (laughs) What is my secret? Um, I scream at everyone (laughs) and I tell them, join or else. Um, But no, actually, we've been very blessed based off on my husband and my business relations in the community, you know, and I think that's the missing that's the missing secret sauce too. And I know it sounds, it could be a little difficult to hear and it was difficult for me to build, but you have to have some sort of ability to reach out to the leaders in the community. And that's how you get enriching mentors. You know, that's how you get the ones that are able to provide some financially as well as, you know, through resources, right. And their time, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the leaders in the community. And so what we do is we go out there, we're part of a lot of networking groups. And I think having have been in foster care myself, I'm able to have a platform where People believe in the work that we do. You know, they hear it. It's coming straight out of the horse's mouth. And we find mentors and our our other 
key point is that I don't care who walks in. I don't care who walks in and want to sign up and become a mentor. What I tell them is that when you come in here and you make a pledge, if you want to get a thank you today or tomorrow, if you would like to feel self satisfaction, you know, gratification, and you want to feel appreciated, this isn't the place. <laughs> You know, this right. is a place for it. And it's not, it's not that we don't appreciate you. It's not that we won't say thank you to you, but it's, you're not going to get that often because our young adults, you know, while we feel like, oh, we're doing a good thing, being a permanent figure in their lives. Hello, huge reminder coming from a youth that was from foster care. We should have had this since day one, you know? So, yep. so that's what we're doing. We are doing God's work and we're going to do it selflessly. And I think being direct like that really helps our mission. I think that the the challenge of mentor programs when you're trying to match mentors with older youth or former foster youth is the impact of the system and all of the moves and the people who have made promises and broken them and all of the issues that young people come out of foster care with that they often, of course, not always, but they often don't want to have a relationship well, how do you set the stage to help build relationships between mentors and youth, knowing that this might be an issue? We can't force it, right? Mm-hmm. We can't force a genuine connection. And we understand, again, it all goes down to lived experience. I get it. I get it, man. Like, I don't want to trust everybody, anybody, anytime. I don't. Mm-hmm. I'm not the one to do that. I'm 27 right now, and I still don't want to do that, <laughs> you know? And when <laughs> I turn 50, I probably still don't want to do that either. That's what, <laughs> that's what lived experience can do to you. But we have a genuinely good relationship with our kids. We do. With our 18, and they're not kids, they're young adults, right? Right, right. We have a good relationship with them. We call them by name. We know what makes them happy. We know what makes them tick. We know what hurts their feelings and we know what makes them smile. So having that genuine connection with them and treating them like a person, by the time that we introduce someone in their lives, they don't see it as, oh, it's another forced thing in a program we have to do. They trust us and they trust our recommendation. And I think that now that is hard work genuinely right. being there for, for all the young adults and you're not treating them like a case manager and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. It takes a yep. lot. It takes a lot of work. It's an investment in time and emotions. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You know, when I did this, Lynn, when I did this, I thought, oh, I'm a giving person. I'm kind. I'm patient. I'm nice. And then I meet all of our young adults and I'm like, oh, I am so imperfect. Like I am, I suck <laughs> at a lot of these traits and they've taught me so much about myself and, and I am a better person because of them. But that doesn't mean that that didn't take days where I questioned myself and those tough conversations and those hurt feelings. Right. And I think a good thing to be aware of as an adult working with these young people is as much as you question yourself, they're probably questioning themselves twice as much, if not more. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Because they don't have the experience. They don't have a lifetime of experiences to draw from, to be yep. able to deal with things. Yep. Exactly. Yep. All right. So your independent living, the transitional housing, and the mentor program, it sounds like that's really geared toward the former foster youth 18 to 21 years old, and you have a lot of in-person connection, I would imagine. Before we move to the other programs and dig into those a little bit, I wanted to ask how this whole COVID crisis has impacted your program. What have you done to help your young people work through that? We put on a mask, we put on hand sanitizer, and we hope we don't get it. (laughs) And the reason why I say that is because the pandemic didn't stop us. I mean, I wouldn't say it didn't care, but COVID didn't care that there are children in foster care. Mm -hmm. 
And it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, we still need to go out there and make sure they're alive. We need to go out there and we need to be the ones that's grabbing the mask for them, that's raiding the shelves for them. We need to be the one that's grabbing food for them. So we're out here during the pandemic exposed completely Mm -hmm. exposed. And we have to be. So that is probably why we're essential workers. I remember having to write a letter to, for my staff to put into their, what is those things called? The glove compartment, you know, or in their visors so that when they get pulled over from the police during the mandated stay at home quarantine, that they can say and pull that letter out. I'm an essential worker. Don't arrest Mm -hmm. me, you know? And so it hasn't really, our work has had to continue despite that. And on the intake side, it hasn't stopped either. We've taken young adults during a pandemic. We have had to change a few regulations, of course, to keep everyone safe. Everyone needs to wear a mask when they come into our office. Everyone needs to get their temperatures checked. Everyone needs to get COVID-19 testing. And Mm -hmm. that's the best we can do. Right. I mean, it's housing. It's kind of tricky. Yeah. What do you do? Deny a youth? Do you do that? I mean, you can't do that either because then what are they going to do? They're going to sleep on the streets during a pandemic. Yeah, they're going to be in a worse situation. Yes. So we take the risk of us catching COVID or do you want a young adult to lay in the streets alone, hungry and in a pandemic? (laughs) You know, what do you do? We were very afraid. We were very afraid. And I've heard from other programs that they've had to pivot financially and, you know, maybe use some of their budget to buy laptops for their youth or other types of electronics that would enable them to stay connected. And, you know, because of the so many schools going online and so forth, did you find yourselves doing any kind of that type of work to support them? We filed for loans. We have a great an amazing treasurer and our president is amazing. Our board is excellent and our team is excellent. So working collectively together because of our savings and because of our prudent financial, you know, use throughout time, we were able to purchase and fundraise and our community is so so incredibly giving to us, Lynn. They are so incredibly giving to us. Mm-hmm. We've had anonymous masks sent over to us. We've had, you know, hand sanitizers, all of the PPP things. So we applied for loans. We applied for grants. We applied, we asked for fundraisers. And because of the trust that our community has with us, we've been all right. That doesn't mean we haven't hurt in a little bit. We've We've had to readjust the way that our staff weren't able to get raises. We've had to use more manpower than they get paid, you know. We were okay with that. This is the work we signed up for. We had to make sure that we, not necessarily technology, but we had to use more money on gas because now we're out. We're out a lot more, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There are instances where we have to watch each other's kids while one goes out and does a unit inspection or out there for an emergency, you know? So there's that. Wow. You really pulled it together then for these young people. They are fortunate to have you at the helm. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't say otherwise because I drive them nuts. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Before I move on to the other two programs, I did want to ask one final thing, because you've mentioned a couple of times how much the trust that you have from the community, that they really support you and trust you. How did you build that? How long did that take? If you were to advise another organization on how they can build trust with their community, what would you tell them? Boy, When we first went out to the community and we asked for apartment complexes and we wanted to partner with people, they didn't give us the time of day at all. Hmm. When we tried to run events, we had less than seven people show up. Yeah. When we finally thought we got somebody that was a social influencer, we didn't get any donations at all. And as a matter of fact, my husband and I has lost so much money in trying to invest into building a nonprofit that a lot of people didn't pay attention to. Why? Because it's a nonprofit. It's about children in foster care and teenagers. What the heck is that? It was such an unknown thing, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. 
And it's a hard demographic too, right? Because when you say cancer, everybody understands what that means. If you say animals, they understand what that means. If you say foster care, they're like, what the heck is that? You know, like fostering animals? No, it's not that. Fostering human beings, (laughs) you know? Right, right. And we're talking about human beings that are not necessarily handicapped in the literal terms. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people didn't give us the time of day. And that was very difficult. So my first message to any organization who's going through that, just hold on. You're not the only one going through this. You're not. You are not. Any organization needs to have a stable first five years. If you can make it through five years, you've been able to be in business because you got to run it like a business too. You really, really do. You have to have somebody at the helm that's able to represent, walk out there, that's able to have negotiations, working with different for-profit companies and organizations and businesses, being able to make sure everybody is happy, that there is a win-win on both ends. So that takes business acumen. You have to be able to ask prudently for financials. And how do you ask that? You need to have really good marketing targets. So you have to have deliberate questions. That's one thing I have learned without having to go to school is that, okay, if I put something out on a fundraiser, I can't do all the fluffy stuff that with all these words and stuff, it's not going to happen. You have to have a deliberate ask, you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and being vulnerable. I think that really helped me. I was really uncomfortable with it, but it helped. I would just like I am doing right now. I am sharing the not so glorious parts about my life and then sharing the glory to the story. Right. 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 That, that really helped. That really helped. But get to know your business owners in the area and get to know who your leaders are. Right. And invite them to participate in not just come to our meeting, but hey, get to know them individually. You have a skill set. Could you come talk to our young people about your skill set? Yes. And, you know, I always, I sit as a vice president for a networking. And one of the things that I do whenever I partner with any for-profit is that, you know, I explain to them, listen, we should be your added value. We're not supposed to just be the guys that are coming and taking the money, you know? Um, <laughs> we, we, we should be your added value. We should be the longevity remembrance that the community has on you. That, hey, isn't that the mm-hmm. dealership that, um, that helped children that were in the system? Or right. isn't that the retail shop that was doing that one fundraiser that one time? We should be your morale builders. We should be the ones that are the added value to your business and brings a purpose to what you do. Yep, absolutely. Yep, that's a great, great reminder. All right. Well, I know that we're quite at the end of our time yet, but I wanted to ask a couple of questions about your Haven Trauma Intervention Room and your With Love Project. It sounds like those aren't specifically focused on the former foster youth that you work with this particularly the trauma intervention room is that for younger foster youth yeah. children who are coming in yeah so we got both of those programs I, they can go hand in hand they're for the babies too they're for the younger ones yeah. you know the five-year-olds the six-year-olds the seven-year-olds they're also the ones that are coming in the system mm-hmm. and we need to make sure that they're taken care of too and when you provide that service for them your first thing that you're doing is you're bringing down the walls. A fun fact about our Haven room is that there's no there's no desk. There's a kitty desk, but there's no other desk in there. And uh, social workers were like, um, "How are we supposed to hold a meeting?" <laughs> and I said, "Well, you better you better know how to sit down, crawl on the floor, lay on your back, something, you know, because <laughs> you got to be able to get on their level. You know, you got to get on your knees, you got to you know squat, do all that other stuff. And if it really requires you to sit in a desk." You're inside of a whole government building. Take them to your cubicle. But outside Mm -hmm. of that, you want their guards down. Bring them to Haven. Get them a beanbag chair or something. (laughs) Yes, and that's exactly what we have in Haven. It's a beanbag chair. I'm like, pull one up and bounce on it. (laughs) I love it. So the Haven 
trauma intervention room is really, I could imagine when you're very much younger and you're going into foster care or you're going to a new placement, that having a more comfortable space like this really would help. Do the older foster youth, the teenagers, do they find that helpful too? One of them teared up. Oh yeah. And said, if this was here when I first entered, that would be so different. Yeah. And it sets the standard. You know, you're coming in and you see a beautiful place like this. It kind of holds everyone accountable, you know, Mm -hmm. because if it doesn't, I mean, what are you representing to this child? You know, after they leave Haven, what they're going, I mean, Haven is in the name, you know, they should be well taken care of. Their sanctuary abuse and all that stuff is out the window. So we try to set a standard there. The older kids say they have a couch that they can sleep on. You know what that does to someone who's been crying all night? has got their adrenaline running all day and Mm -hmm. still has adrenaline running. And then you want to sit down and ask them all these questions in a cubicle. That's not going to work. No. So. No. And what building did you say that your Haven intervention room is located in? This is our first Haven room and it's in the Division of Family and Social Services. So it's built in. Lynn, Uh, when, when I was about 15 or 16 years old, I had to wait four hours in a juvenile detention center's jail And I sat in that jail cell waiting for whatever the placement I was going to be at. And hopefully one day we can have a haven in courthouses. That would be amazing. It sounds like it could be a partnership with CASA. Yes. And actually it is. CASA uses our room consistently as well. And it's a place for them to be able to, you know, while they're working on cases and while they're working alongside with a social worker or whenever a CASA worker needs to come in, that is a space that they use as well. So we've been very happy to be able to provide that support for them. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. Well, I know that we're at the end of our time. I just wanted to thank you. I didn't get to everything that I wanted to talk to you about, but I really love the information you shared about your program. Quick question. If anybody wanted to donate to your program, where should they go to do that? You can follow us on Facebook at at Gilliard and Company, G-I-L-L-I-A-R-D, spell it out, and company. Or you can follow us on our website. And right when you go on there, there's a donate button that you can go to, and that's www.gilliard, G-I-L-L-I-A-R-D, and you spell the rest of it out, A-N-D, company.org, and learn about what we do. Make a difference today and follow the initiative, hashtag foster with us. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Whitney. I'm so glad that you were able to join us today. Share with us about your program. Maybe I can have you back and we can dig into how the foster system can be improved in the future. How's that sound? That sounds amazing, Lynn. It's a date. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Well, thank you again. I wish you all the best. And for those who have listened to the end of this podcast, thank you so much. We put out podcasts on our website, agingoutinstitute.org, every couple of weeks or so. So keep checking back for the next one down the road. Thanks very much.